So Joshua chapter 8, we'll look at verses 30 through 35 this morning. And uh, so kind of catch us up. Okay, we know it's the last Sunday that we're in this building, but it's also our final Sunday of the season we've called Consecrate. As we prepare ourselves for what God wants to do in us and through us in the future, we've been taking this month to fast, to focus in and listen to what God's saying. And so I, I, I trust that God has been faithful to speak to you individually about your life and the things he's wanting to accomplish in you. But today we come to kind of the last stage of this journey as we've looked through the first eight chapters of Joshua and we've looked at Israel's journey as God led them to this land he was giving them and the transition that they went through. There's so many things that we've been able to glean from their journey that really kind of mirrors what we're experiencing as a church family. And so we've walked our way through that and now we find ourselves in Joshua chapter 8 this morning. And I want to talk about something that's extremely important and that is remembering who we are. In a moment, I'm going to read from the passage. You're going to see that as Israel was on this journey, they came to this place where they were getting into the land that God was giving them. They were about to really go full force in. And God stops them and does something very important because they have to remember who they are before they can move forward. And one of the things that we do as individual human beings and then as well, churches do it as well, is that if we struggle with understanding who we are, then we will struggle with understanding what God's called us to do. And what we end up doing, instead of truly being uh, honest about what we are and what we're supposed to be, we try to pretend to be something that we're not. We try to borrow from here or copy this over here because we have no true identity on our own. And the danger for us as a church family is as we move forward into something new, a new name, a new identity, a new location, that we, we have, there's a danger that we could default back to, well, let's just do what we know is familiar is the past, or let's just pick up on what we've seen other churches do, and let's just plug that in, and then somehow try to find our identity in that. That's not what God's been doing over the last couple years. He's actually been honing us in and focusing us in on saying, this is who I've called you to be. And so this morning, I want to take some time to talk about that as we move forward, because this message this morning is not, it's not like a goodbye message, because uh, we've talked about the church is not this building. We're not defined by Shasta. Now, I know it's easy for me to say, I've been here for like a little less than two and a half years, and so for some of you who've been here for over 20, this has kind of defined what the church has been for you. So there's, with the excitement of the future, there's also kind of the sadness of leaving what was familiar in the past, and so I apologize, I have no sentimental connection to this building whatsoever, so you won't see me shed a tear, and I'm, I'm not wanting to be insensitive to you. So this is not like, okay, saying goodbye, you know, we're not going to sing friends or friends forever, for the, you know, we're not going to, it's no, you know what, God is turning the page and we're moving forward. And so this Sunday and then next Sunday, our first Sunday at at Runway is Antioch Church, will be two Sundays that will kind of work together today, talking about kind of the overarching kind of understanding of this is the identity that God has given us as as a church. It's not something we've just arrived on. It's something I've been talking about over the last year. Uh, And then when we get to next Sunday, we'll talk about the specific DNA that God has infused into us as Antioch Church and what that looks like for our future. Why is identity so important? Because when you and I try to do something that we're not, it usually leads to failure. I just mentioned, David didn't go out on the battlefield to face Goliath as a soldier. He did as a shepherd. That's why he was victorious, because God was using what he had gifted David to do. When I was younger, I've I've shared that I, I had a very short baseball career. It lasted one season. And there were a number of things that happened during that, that season that were kind of identifiers like, you are not a baseball player. Don't pretend to be. I've shared the story how I was literally knocked out cold by a ground ball to the outfield. That's a sign. Maybe you shouldn't be playing baseball. Another one of those moments was when my coach, a couple games in, you know, he's trying to figure out who's good at what position, so he's putting players at different positions. We're practicing one day, and he, he decides to try me out as catcher. 
Now, I've been tall, but I, I don't have a lot of meat on my bones. And so usually to be a good catcher, you've got to have some muscle behind it. And so he says, let's try out a catcher. I was a pretty small kid. And so he's, I said, I don't think I can do it. He goes, yeah, let's try out. So I suit up. I got the helmet, the mask, the chest protector. I got the shin guards, and I did have a cup on, so you know. I know you're concerned about that. I had all the gear. I had the, the catcher's mitt. I had everything. So I had all the gear on, and it was hilarious. I put that on, and I could barely walk. So I kind of stumble over, and I get behind the plate, and there, there's one of our pitchers up on the mound. He's going to throw some pitches. So I, I get down into position. I put the glove up, and I kid you, no joke. I was so small, and I didn't have much muscle, I couldn't even close the catcher's mitt. So when the, when the kid on the mound pitched the ball, I had the, I had the mitt in the right place, and the ball hit it, and then it hit the ground. And the coach was like, that's okay, you'll get the next one. So I throw the ball back, pitcher pitches again, hits it, hits the ground. Like four in a row, I think I, out of like ten pitches, I think I caught one. You know, and so after I finished that and the ball was getting by me, I couldn't stop it. It was hitting me in the chest protector and the head and everything. Finally, I took off the gear. My coach looks at me, and I look at him, and he's all, I don't think you're a catcher. I'm like, ah, I don't think I'm a catcher either. But it took me going through that journey realizing I'm not going to pretend to be something that I'm not. But, you know, sometimes as, as a church and as individuals, you know what we do? We spend our whole life trying to be something that we're not. And it's frustrating and it's painful and it leads to failure. And we kind of like get angry at ourselves or we get mad at God. And God says, I never called you to be that. I never told you that. Why are you trying to be something that you're not? The same thing is true for as our church. We're not... We're not in the business of trying to replicate what other churches are doing. That's the beauty of the body of Christ. God uses the church to accomplish his mission in the world, and not every church is the same. God gives each church a unique calling, but the overall overarching kind of concept of God's mission doesn't change. That's the beauty of God using our insanity called denominations to accomplish his purpose. We divide, and God unites us somehow through his mission. So with that in mind today, what I'd like to do is I'm going to read starting uh, in verse 30 and read to verse 35. So to catch us up to speed. So Israel has gone through their 40 years of wandering. Now they've crossed the Jordan miraculously. They hit Jericho, big city. God gives them this ability by marching around the city. The walls fall down. They take Jericho. They're into the next city, which is called Ai. And because of somebody's sin back in, if we were here a couple weeks ago, we talked about Achan took some of the things that belonged to God. And because of that, they go to Ai and they get wiped out. So then God uses that to get their attention. They repent. They purify themselves. Uh, Achan's family gets basically toast is what happens. And they move forward. They take Ai. Now they're about to kind of set out on this next, like, season of, okay, taking the land. But something interesting happens. They pause. Just like they paused, if you were here a few weeks ago, they paused to circumcise, which now we're moving on from circumcision. They pause and they do something really important. Let me read, and, and we'll talk about how this reflects for us. It says, Then Joshua built on Mount Ebal the altar to the Lord, the God of Israel. As Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites, he built it according to what was written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no iron tool had been used. On it they offered to the Lord the burnt offerings and sacrifice, and sacrifice fellowship offerings. There in the presence of the Israelites, Joshua wrote on stones a copy of the law of Moses. All of the Israelites with their elders and officials and judges were standing on both sides of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, facing the Levitical priest who carried it. Both the foreigners living among them and the native-born were there. Half of the people stood in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had formerly commanded when he had, had gave instructions to the blessed the people of Israel. Afterward, Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, just as it was written in the book of the law. 
There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel, including the women and children and the foreigners who lived among them. This is extremely significant. They are about to go into this land fully. They're about to take more cities and more territory. And God pauses them, and Joshua takes time to write down what has been the defining document or the defining words by God of who they are as a people. It's called the law. So Joshua goes back to what God had given Moses to give to Israel and goes and reads the entire law back to them as a reminder. This is who God is. This is who God says you are. And this is how you are supposed to function as a people in relationship to the world, in relationship to God. It's their defining document. It's their identity is wrapped up in this thing called the law. And why is this important? Because if you continue to read through Israel's history... From here forward, there are really great moments and there are some really bad moments. And the bad moments come as a result of them forgetting who they are. See, because what they're about to do is take a land that is filled with all kinds of people who either have no gods, false gods, or idols, who don't follow the God of Israel. And their temptation is, as they go into this land, is to become just like the other people in the land. In fact, God many times says, hey, don't start intermarrying. Don't start embracing their gods. Don't go down that road because you're not going to be my people. You're going to get sidetracked. You're going to get distracted. You're going to lose a sense of who you are. But they continue to do it over and over again. In fact, if you read on their story, it's really interesting. In one point, God, God had set it up that God was the king of Israel. That was the whole point. He was their king. But they looked around at all the other people in the land and said, man, they all got kings. If we're really going to be something, then we need to have a king. So they cried out to God, give us a king. And who did God give them? Saul. Saul was such a winner, wasn't he? God never intended for that, but he, he allowed that because that's what they wanted to do. And this is important for Israel because God is saying, listen, you need to remember who I said you are. You need to remember who I am. You remember your identity because it's going to be challenged at every point. The same thing is true for us as a church family. As we move forward, the tendency will be, let's just be like every other church. Let's just get a new building, and we'll do this, and we'll have a new program, and we'll have better lights and sound, and we'll have a better kind of setup, and it'll be great, and people will flock from all over the place. Why? Because we have a new name and a new building. No, they won't. If they do, you know who they'll be? They'll be mostly Christians. No offense. But we don't exist for ourselves. Who do we exist for? The world around us. The people that God's called us to reach, to be friends with, to welcome into his kingdom as they in, they're introduced to who Jesus is. That's who we want to embrace. And those aren't people who are going to flock into a church building. Those are people we're going to encounter in our neighborhoods, our schools, and our jobs. And that's, that's the direction that we're heading as a church. So what I want to do for the, for the next few moments is remind you of who we are as a church. This is something that if you've been here over the last year or so, this will be the third time on a Sunday morning I've talked about who we are. If you've gone through a line, you've heard it in detail about the, the key things. There's three key elements that define who we are that are what God has purposed for his people that we are embracing as a church family. And so I want you to hear those. But kind of the synopsis, the one statement that defines who we are is this. As a church, as Antioch Church, remembering who we are, this is who God says we are. We exist to join God in the reconciliation of all things back to him through Jesus by making disciples like Jesus so that people from all nations worship Jesus. So in a nutshell, and I'll kind of make it in more simplified form, it's three things. It is the concept of reconciliation, which is with Jesus, discipleship, being like Jesus, and the ultimate result of that is glory or worship of Jesus. 
So those three things, with Jesus, like Jesus, glorify Jesus, that defines who we are. That's, that's our identity. That's what God has said you're supposed to be. And, and so this morning, I, I want to talk about what do those three things mean. Now, for some of you who are really proficient and memorize everything that you heard, this is going to be total f- review. For the rest of us who forget what we ate for breakfast, this will be like it's the first time we've ever heard it, right? But this is important. We need to know who we are so that we can embrace what God has called us to do in our city and our world. So the first concept that we are as a church is the concept of reconciliation with Jesus. And the best passage that I think defines what that looks like is what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let me read verse 17 to verse 21. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as, through, as though Christ were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So let's just back up for a moment. If you want to kind of understand all of human history, why we're here, why God is doing what he's doing, it's all really summed up in one concept, reconciliation. That God is in the process over time in human history through Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection, which gave him power over sin and death, the two biggest issues for all humanity, that Jesus has authority over those so that because we are unreconciled, separated from God, through what Jesus has done, we are brought back into a right relationship with God. That is what human history is all about. That's why we're still here. That's why Peter talks about in his letters, he says, listen, God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish so that people can come to the knowledge of the truth of who Jesus is. So all of the reason why we exist as a church, why human history is still unfolding, why Jesus hasn't returned, why is because God is in the process of reconciling all things back to himself through Jesus. That's why we're still here. And he invites us as his church to be a part of that, to be ambassadors, to experience reconciliation firsthand. So there's two key things about this that, that and just real briefly, want to kind of understand is that, first of all, you and I need to understand when it comes to reconciliation, we have to be reconciled to God as individual people. That means that from the moment that we're born and into this world, we make decisions that cause us to be in an unreconciled state with God. It's just like what Adam and Eve did thousands and thousands of years ago. God sets up this system and says, Listen, I want to be with you. I want to be your God. And in fact, he used to walk in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. But he also loves people enough and is gracious enough. He gives us the capacity to choose to accept him or to reject him. Adam and Eve, if you know the story, they chose to say, you know what? I'm going to try it my own way. I'm going to be my own God. I'm going to do it my own way. I'm going to eat the fruit that you said not to eat. And we know how the story goes. And since then, we've all been making the same decision. Millions and billions of people throughout time have made that same decision. I'm going to do it my way. So because God loves us, instead of giving up on us, he sends Jesus to reconcile us, to take our sin, our rejection of him, our rebellion on himself on the cross. That's what Jesus did, paid for it. And then in exchange, he says, okay, here's my righteousness. Here's a reconciled relationship with the God of the universe. Why is that so important? Because all of us know this to be true deep down inside. In fact, Steve talked about it in his own journey during worship this morning. 
that when we are unreconciled to God, we are separated from God, we aren't, Jesus is not living in us, we're not following him, we don't know God, there's always something deep down inside of us that's not right. And we can work really hard at making life great and wonderful and good and happy and fun and contentful and all these things. But deep down inside, because at the core of who we are, something's not right, life will never be right. And when that's true, then you have to take a step back and realize, wait a second, what's going on in me? Why is something not right? And we can try a lot of things to make things right, but we have to take a step back and look inside. I'm unreconciled with God. I'm doing it my own way. I'm, I'm relying on my own ability instead of relying on God through Jesus. It's not unlike a, probably, I don't know, a long time ago when Kim and I were first married. It was, her car wasn't functioning right, wasn't working, and so I was taking it to the mechanic, and, and so I drove it out of the driveway because Kim had said, yeah, something's not right, and so I, I was heading off to the mechanic, and as I pulled out of the driveway, I could tell the engine was really loud, but there wasn't a whole lot of power to back it up. It was like, it was like yelling really loud, like, hey, I'm really powerful, but there was nothing to it. I got on the freeway, which was probably a mistake, and as I was accelerating on the freeway, I floored it and just held it there, and I got up to a whopping 50 miles an hour, you know, and so you're going, you know, ever driven 50 miles an hour on the freeway in Southern California? Really interesting hand motions and mouth, you know, things that come at you, words that you don't hear, but you know exactly what they are, those kind of things, and so finally I got off the freeway, get to the mechanic, and I pull in, and I'm like, I'm flooring it, it's just like working really hard, it's not going anywhere, and I said, something's wrong with my car. And so he, you know, he says, start it up again. And so we're listening to it and opens the hood and does a few things. And he goes, oh, I know what's wrong. I said, well, what's wrong? He said, this is a four-cylinder car. I said, yeah, I know that. I'm not a mechanic, but I know it's a four-cylinder. He goes, but you're only working on three cylinders. One of your cylinders isn't even functioning at all. So you're only at like 75% of the power that the car is going to give you. And he said, uh, he said that, that obviously, he goes, we can fix that, of course. He ran another diagnostic to find it was like a $500 computer part. Anybody ever experienced that before? That it had to control the whole this and that and everything. I'm like, great, you know? So anyway, he said, by the way, he goes, you probably even shouldn't have driven it here because, you know, there's going to be damage if you continue to drive it. And so I kind of took a step back and said, oh, okay, well, now I know why things aren't working well. Because what's inside that engine is not doing what it was designed to do. You and I were created to be in relationship with God. People can deny that. People can say God doesn't exist. And by the way, God's not threatened by that. Just because someone says he doesn't exist doesn't mean he poof disappears. God is real. And we were created to be in a reconciled relationship with him. And when we're not, life can never be what it's supposed to be. And most importantly, life in eternity can never be what it's supposed to be. And that's why you and I, at a personal level, we have to come to that place where it says, I am reconciled with God. I have given my life over to Jesus. I have accepted his sacrifice for me. I've let him remove my sin from me. I've turned from the way I used to live and chosen to follow Jesus so that I am right with God. That's the way that God intended us to live. There's a second thing about reconciliation. Not only do we have to personally experience it, but we have to realize that God has called us to be his ambassadors of reconciliation. It's not good enough to say, hey, okay, I got my reconciliation. I'm good with God. Everything's fine, you know. I know where my future lies. God gives us that, and then he deposits his Holy Spirit, and the the, the heart of God's Spirit is mission, and mission is reaching out to other people to allow them to experience the same reconciliation that we've experienced. That's important. And the reason that's so important is because one of the things that we have a tendency to do as Christians is that when we think about the gospel, what is the gospel? Sometimes we will dumb the gospel down to this. This is sometimes, in fact, a lot of people in our culture, this is what they think the gospel is. You are a sinner. You're going to die and go to hell unless you choose to turn and follow Jesus with your life. Now, is that true? Yes. But what does that say to people? 
You know what it says? Jesus is the booby prize. You need to embrace Jesus because you don't want to go to hell. So you're really not choosing Jesus. You're just not choosing hell. And that's what gets sold to people. And so what happens is, instead of saying what kind of a bigger picture the gospel is, God created you, and he loves you, and he wants you to live the life he purposed for you, but that can't be accomplished apart from him. And because you've chosen to be unreconciled, he didn't somehow write you off. He said, I love you enough that I'll actually send my son to make it right so that you can be in a right relationship with me, so that your life can be truly living in this life and can last forever in eternity with me. No mention of hell. Does that mean that, oh, we should just downplay hell? No, hell is a reality and it's real. The problem is that so many times we tell people that following Jesus is just about avoiding hell. I want you just to think about this for a moment. What if we apply that to marriage? What if on your wedding day, you know, guys, you're, you're sharing your vows to your wife, and out of, out of your vows you say, listen, I got turned down by all these other women who are really much more beautiful than you, so you're all that I'm left with. Would that go over very well on your wedding day? No, I don't think you'd be married. But that's exactly what we tell people Christianity is about. You just don't want to go to hell, so you get stuck with Jesus. No, Jesus is option A. If we understood that, the gospel really is good news. It's that there is a way to live reconciled. There is a way to live the way God purposed for you. There is a way to secure your eternity because what God has done for you. All of that is true. And yeah, well, by the way, the added benefit is you don't have to go to hell. That's good news. See, that's reconciliation, and that's what the gospel is, and that's why God has called us to be a people who are ambassadors of reconciliation. That means we actually have a good message that is actually good news that we really want to tell people about. Why? Because we're excited about ourselves. Look at what happened to me. Look at what God did for me. Look at what Jesus has done in my life to change and transform me. Look at the forgiveness. Now that even though I'm not perfect, God still works in my life, and Jesus brings his forgiveness. Can you imagine what that would sound like to somebody else? Like, wow. Either you've had too much coffee or something real happened in your life, and I want to know more about that. If you and I were to understand, we truly would be ambassadors of reconciliation. That's where God's, what God's, God has called us to be as a church. We are ambassadors of reconciliation for Simi Valley, for our country, for our world. And there are billions of people around the world that are still unreconciled with God, and he's called us to reach them. Then the second thing, the second kind of element of the identity is not only so with Jesus and reconciliation, but then like Jesus, and that's this concept of discipleship. And discipleship is, is what we we'd glean, obviously, from the scriptures. Jesus made disciples. He called his original 12 disciples, and then in Matthew 28, he made it very clear. He said, this is your mission to make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. And then he reminds us, I'm with you always through this whole process to the very end. And so he says, your role as followers of me, the role of the church, the mission of God is reconciliation, and the process of reconciliation looks like discipleship, which is becoming like Jesus. I think kind of the, the best understanding of what discipleship looks like, what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, is what John writes in 1 John 2, verses 3 through 6. Let me read that. John says, We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands, if we do what Jesus has instructed us to do in our lives. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as 
Jesus did. Three things in that, just really, really want to quickly touch on, that describe for you and I, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? What does it look like in our life? John describes it really clearly for us. The three things that this stand out, the first thing is this, a disciple ultimately follows the words of Jesus. If, if I am someone who's given my life to Jesus, I've chosen to connect with God and be reconciled with God through Jesus, that means that what Jesus says that I am supposed to do in my life, I do it. It's that Christian bad word. It's another four-letter word. It's called obey. And we don't like it. Because what does obey mean? That means I might have to do something that I really don't want to do. And sometimes obedience is exactly that. Because when Jesus comes into the world and he begins to preach this message he's talking about, it's counter to the culture he's living in. It's even counter to the religious leaders. And so in some ways it becomes somewhat offensive. But John says this in verses 3 and 4. He says, we know that we have come to know him if we know information about him, study the Bible, go to church, go to Bible study. No, if we keep his commands, if we do what he says. He says, whoever says, I know him, but doesn't keep his commands is a liar, and then there's no truth in that. There's no truth in us. That's one of the signs. I'm a disciple. Why? Because does it mean I'm perfect all the time? No, but it means I strive to obey what Jesus says I'm supposed to do in my life. And if you and I can really embrace that, it will not only change our lives, it will change the world around us. Let's just isolate one, one of the things that Jesus said and talk about how we are to do that. So in Matthew 5, verses 23 and 24, Jesus talks about if you're coming to the altar, or you're coming, in a sense, to worship me, uh, and you know that you have an issue with somebody else, that you're unreconciled with them, don't come and offer your gift. Leave it there. Go find the person. Make the relationship right. And even what, what Paul would say later in Romans 12, talk about as, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with other people. So try to make things right. Then come back and worship me. So what God is saying is that Jesus is saying to us, one of his commands, one of the things we're supposed to do is that we are not supposed to live in broken relationships with other people and think that our relationship with God is okay. But how many times do we compartmentalize and say, hey, God and I, we're good, but boy, I really can't stand that person, right? Oh man, they really offended me. They really hurt me. And, And we pray for our enemies and what we're praying for is that God would strike them dead, right? Not that we would forgive them. But this is important. Why? Because Jesus said, you, you can't live right with me if you're not living right with other people. But we try to do it all the time. And why is that such a, a bad thing? It's because that not only affects our lives and the life of the other person who either offended us or we've offended, but it poisons everybody else around them. And then on top of that, it causes division, it causes backbiting, it causes personal offense. And you know what? That translates to the world. When the world looks at the church, they see a place and a people that are just as divided and separated and hate each other as much as the world does. So they look at us and go, hmm, I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think they have this thing down. But what if we actually lived in reconciled relationships? What if when somebody offended us, we were quick to deal with it? Or if we offended some of us, we were quick to ask for forgiveness. We were doing what Jesus commanded us to do. I'll tell you one thing. I know when I live that way and I strive to live that way, there is so much more peace in my life. I don't have to avoid anybody. I don't have to worry who's going to be at what meeting or who's going to show up on Sunday. I know why, because as far as it depends on me, I'm trying to live at peace with everybody. I'm trying to extend forgiveness, and I'm trying to accept forgiveness. Why? Because that's what Jesus intended for us. That's obedience. There's a lot of other things we could take a lot of time to go through. That's why we took time to go through the teachings of Jesus throughout the book of Matthew, and that's why we have a thing called Discipleship Essentials, which walks us through that. Why? What has Jesus said my life's supposed to look like? How do I obey him? Second thing. It's true of a disciple, is that a disciple reflects the character of Jesus. And the character of Jesus is best defined in one word, love. In fact, 
John says this, but if anyone obeys the word, love for God is truly made complete in them. That there's this love we have for God. And if we have love for God, then there's a broader love for people around us. And in our culture today, if you were to ask people, what do you think, if you could give one word, what, what would best describe Jesus to you? Most people who don't even go to church would say love. The sad part is, if you asked the same question, said, what would you say if there was one word to describe the church to you, what would it be? Most people wouldn't say love. What would they say? Judgmental. That's the, that's the primary word. How is it that a people who choose to follow Jesus, a God of love, can be defined by judgment? Because maybe we've missed out on the character of Jesus. How did Jesus have the capacity to hang out with people who were sinners and to, for them to feel a sense of being drawn towards him, even though they were sinners and even though he was never soft on sin? How did Jesus do that? How did Jesus love people? He had this capacity that I think sometimes that we, we miss out on. But just think about what would it look like if our lives was, we were actually defined by love. That that's what our default was. That's the way we wanted to engage people. That when people saw us, they thought, wow, that person really loves other people. They really care about other people. They're not just nice to people. They actually really value people. They're willing to give of themselves. They really love people. And what if, you know, we were in 10 years or 20 years from now, the church in America, people say, well, what is the church? What's the one word? And people said, love. It would look totally different. But if we think about that, think about people around us, that if we truly love them, we understand that they're in a, a place that are unreconciled you know, with God in a relationship to them. Because we love them, we're motivated to be near them, to help them to see the truth of what's going on around them, to care for them. This last week, we were at our Foursquare convention. Kim and I got a chance to go. It was down in Anaheim, and it's our annual convention for our denomination. And so the highlight for me was there's a speaker named Bob Goff, and he he was on Tuesday morning, and his whole mantra was, love everyone always. And he shared from his own life and his own journey of how he's learned to love people and value people. And man, he just goes over the top. And part of that is that he loves to be accessible to people. And sometimes, you know, we like to love people in our own schedule, in our own convenience, in our own comfort. Anybody want to admit that's true? I'll love you, but it has to fit in my schedule, right? And, and I don't want it to cost me anything. He so wants to live that out. He wrote a book called Love Does. And at the end of the book, the publishers didn't want him to do this, but he did it anyway. He put his personal cell phone number at the end of the book and welcomes calls. And if he is not in a meeting or speaking somewhere and his phone is in his hand, he will never send anyone to voicemail. Isn't that crazy? I think the book has sold nearly a million copies. There are a million people that has his, have his personal cell phone number and they can call any time of the day. And if he has his phone in his hand, he'll answer it. That's crazy. That's insane. You're thinking, man, he must be getting calls all the time. Did he check with his wife first before he asked to do that? Why? Because he wants to really value people. Because one thing that exudes from him is love. If we're going to be people that say, yeah, I'm a disciple of Jesus, I'm a follower of Jesus, then people are going to say, oh, then you love people, don't you? You love God and you love people, and I can see it. You really value people around you. And then there's a third thing that's true of a disciple, and that is a disciple embraces the way of Jesus, and that is sacrifice. So John says this in verse 5 and 6. He said, this is how we know that we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. How did Jesus live? Jesus, who was God, chose to be human, to suffer, to ultimately lay down his life for you and I so that we could be freed from our sin, be forgiven for it, so that we could 
have power over sin and death because he defeated sin and death through the death, his death and resurrection. He was willing to sacrifice himself for our behalf. That is the way of Jesus. And he calls us to do the same, to live a life of sacrifice, to be willing to give our lives away for the sake of people, for his sake and the lives of people all around us, to not worry about our comfort and our convenience and what's easy for us or what we want or what we think that we need all the time in life. But he chose not to focus on himself, yet focused on others. I'm not, you don't have to turn there, but I encourage you, go read Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Paul says this in verse 5. He says, your attitude, your mindset should be the same as Christ Jesus. And then he defines how Jesus humbled himself to be human and to die on a cross. And that was Jesus' Jesus' journey of success looks a lot different than ours because at the end of that, the last three verses, then it says, Paul writes, and then God gave him the name that is above every name and that at his name that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Why? Because Jesus sacrificed himself. That's what Jesus calls us to be, a people of sacrifice. As we make this move, this building move, and if you've been here over the process of right size, this building move is not about bigger and better. Most, you know, it's like, oh, it's a building program. You want to go to a better place. And it's going to be nice simply because everything will be new for a little while, and then it will get used. But it's smaller The process has not been bigger and better. It's been functional and appropriate for what our needs are as a church, for a meeting facility, really. That's why why we're doing this. Why? Because it's not about us. It's not about our comfort. We're not installing wider recliner chairs in the sanctuary. It's not about a better air conditioner. It's not about that. It's not about our comfort. It's about positioning ourselves to be available to give away and to sacrifice ourselves for the sake of our community and for our world. That's what Jesus called us to be. And we have to be willing to do that. And that's what I've said this over and over again. And, and if you haven't gotten there yet, here's your wonderful opportunity to make the change from this Sunday to next Sunday. When you walk into a gathering of Antioch Church on a Sunday morning, you are not allowed to ask this question either out loud or in your mind. What's in it for me? You can't ask that question. The ushers will quickly escort you out of the room. The only question you can ask is, what is God up to today? What is God doing? And how do I join him in what he's doing? Not, is the worship team, who's leading today? Do I like the song selection? Is Pastor John really good? Is he boring? Did the kids, my kids have fun? And, you know, all the things that we say, oh, then that was, church was good. No. Church is good when we give ourselves away. Church is good when I open my eyes to the people sitting around me and pray for somebody who maybe is going through a hard time and meet somebody that's brand new and then welcome into the church. That's a good day. Why? Because it wasn't about me. I know at the end of the day, when my life hasn't been about me, I am so happy. When it's been about me, I am absolutely miserable. If you don't think that's true, ask him. She'll tell you. Days that are filled with sacrifice are usually the days that are most fulfilling. Jesus knew what he was doing, and he always called us to. And then, finally, the, the concept, the overall concept now is also glorify Jesus, which is the concept of worship. So the ultimate outcome of this is this concept of reconciliation. So people with Jesus, reconciled back to God. And the way that looks like in our lives when we're reconciled is that we become his disciples. And the ultimate outcome of reconciliation and discipleship is worship. It's making God look good. It's glorifying Jesus. It's lifting him up so that we don't take the glory or we don't take the credit, but Jesus does of what he's done in our life. And so just real briefly, if you were here a number of months ago and we talked about this, 
the, the concept of worship is a beautiful picture that I think sometimes we lose. And maybe as a church, as we move forward, we need to change the language that we use because we always say worship. And when we say worship, we're defining a 15 to 20 to 30 minute time on a Sunday morning where we sing songs. Isn't that worship, right? When does worship start? When is worship over? What worship songs are we singing? And somehow we say, okay, now that worship's done, worship is never done. But worship is everything. Worship is the way I think, the way I act, the way I handle my finances, the way that I relate to my family, everything. It's all about, is this pointing to Jesus? Is this glorifying him? That's worship. And the New Testament picture of worship is captured in a word, word that's, the word is proskuneo. It's a Greek word, and it's two words put together. And literally means, you take the first part, which means toward, and the second part, which means kiss. It's to kiss toward. And the concept in the New Testament was this is that worship is this. It's down on my knees, kissing towards with my life where my affection lies, which is with Jesus. That's worship. So everything that I do, am I humbling myself before Jesus, focusing on him, giving all that I am to him so that ultimately all the glory goes to him? That's what worship is. So what we do on Sunday morning for 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, that's a small sliver of worship. And if we struggle with worshiping during songs on Sunday morning, I guess what we're doing the rest of the week, we're struggling with worship during the week because it's still this battle. Oh, it's about me. No, it's really about him. And there's two elements that flow out of what worship is. There's the devotion side, and then there's the demonstration side. The devotion side is that personal side of truly being devoted to Jesus and worshiping him and focusing on him. Jesus said it in his own words in Matthew 22, verse 37, 38. Jesus replied, it says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And to understand that, and as well other passages, all your strength, all of who you are. And then he says in verse 38, this is the first and greatest commandment. And then he says in verse 39, he says that the second one is, is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no you, there's no me, there's no I in any of that. It's about him and about other people. That's worship. And that means that if I'm going to be someone who worships God, that means that my life is devoted. Does it mean that I'm perfect? No. But it means that my, my focus is more on Jesus than on me. It's more on what he wants to do in every day of my life. It's more than what he wants to do with my life than about the agenda that I have for my life. That's devotion. Because when, when we get to the end of our life and we look back, we're going to look back and say, you know what, I sold out all of who I am for Jesus, and because of that, he's glorified. People are attracted to him as opposed to, man, I worked really hard, and I had a lot of ups and downs, and man, I wish I could have done this, and I had regrets here. And What if we didn't have that? What if it was all about Jesus? That's what this devotion means, which, which leads to the second part, which is what people really see in us, and that's the demonstration of worship. If my life is really focused on Jesus, then people around me are going to notice that. They're going to see that. And that's why Jesus, in his own words, also says in Matthew 5, verse 16, he says, In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. He talks about, like, a light that you don't cover. It's out there for people to see. It, so it's lit. It, it provides light for around it. It affects everything around it. Our lives are supposed to be like that in such a way that there's light shining through us, that ultimately don't, that doesn't attract people to us, it attracts people to Jesus through us. That's that demonstration. And if we capture this, this one simple concept of worship, it will change our lives and change our city. And let me explain why. This is the, this is the journey of our church of where we've been the last couple of years. That as a church, we are embracing something that many of us think is a new concept, 
but if we realize it, it's a really old one. And that is the church is the people, not the building, not the pastor, not the programs. And it's through the church that God accomplishes his mission. So the mission of God primarily is accomplished not in our gatherings, but in our life during the week. It's in our houses. It's in our apartments. It's in our schools. It's in our job. It's in in public when we're relating to people. That's where the mission of God is. That's the fulfillment of God's mission through the church. And that's why we've been on this, this trajectory now where things have shifted. And if you've stuck through all the change in the last couple of years, you've kind of grasped this concept that the most effective way for us to fulfill God's mission is not to build a bigger and better building, not to have better programs, not to do worship better than the next church down the street, have a, a more creative pastor, and do things that will bring people into a building. That won't be effective. What is effective is when hundreds of people who live all over our city in Moore Park or San Fernando Valley or Fillmore, wherever you live, are spread out in their lives through the, through the week, encountering people who are unreconciled with God and are getting to know them so that God can use that relationship as an avenue of his grace to introduce them to Jesus. That's where we're going. That's where we are. And if we do that, we can multiply mission through the roof. But if we get tied to a building and an event and a personality or an experience, we can't help many people. Because then we're always limited by the capacity of our building. And then if we have to get a bigger building, it costs more money, which means we can't do mission. But if we focus on what God is doing through us individually and demonstrating this thing called worship, then guess what happens? This is the beauty of that. When somebody sees Jesus in you and starts a conversation, eventually they make an understanding to the point where they give their life to Jesus. Now guess what you have? You have built-in discipleship. Because now you become the primary disciple in their life. Because they've looked at you and said, hey, I'm understanding Jesus through you now. And that, that's great because you know what we end up usually doing? I've got to bring them to church. Pastor John's got to preach a really good message. And then they'll get saved. And then they'll go to a new believers class. And then, no, they should know you. And for most people, if we're really effective, you know the first step in the Antioch church for most people won't be a Sunday morning. It'll be a community group. Because community groups are based on relationship. And that's, that's effective. Remember, that's kind of the way Jesus did it. How many people did Jesus disciple? It's not a trick question. 12. That's it. The God of the universe in human flesh said, make disciples. And how many did he make? 12. And one of them didn't last. In fact, turned his back on it. That's how many he made. Now, there were others outside of that, but the ones he poured his life into in those three years of ministry was 12. But he had thousands that would come. Yeah, when there was a free meal or when he was healing people, but he had 12 disciples. That's important. If we're going to be obedient to make disciples, it's not okay, how many more people can we get to come to church? No, how many people can I personally invest in? And you know what? The number 12 is pretty close to what one person can invest in personally. God's called us to make disciples. There, the church is growing rapidly all over the world now. And you know how it's growing? Not through our model, not through people coming to services. It's all underground. It's all through relationship. It's all in somebody's living room. That's how the church is growing. That's how it grew in China. It's how it's growing in Iran. It's how it's growing in Indonesia, all around the world. It's not big mega churches. That's what we, we're kind of like, that's our thing in the United States. Now it's around the world, it's effectively growing one person at a time, one relationship at a time. Hmm, maybe the world knows something that we've missed. God's called us to invest in relationship. Let me close with this. This kind of gives you the, the kind of the picture of what I think our church could look like as individual followers of Jesus. So many of you were, were here over the last few months. Um, we had a guy named Brad Briscoe speak and then another guy named Lance Ford. They wrote their co-authors in a book called The Missional Quest. 
and they're, both their journeys are very interesting. But if you remember when Lance was here, he spoke about how he had pastored for a, a long time, and then he and his wife really felt like the Lord was calling them to do something different to be more effective in reaching people. So they moved to Kansas City, and they moved into a specific neighborhood in Kansas City. And when they moved in, at the same time as between them and another couple that moved in, somehow word got out that they were evangelical Christians, and when they moved into the neighborhood, everybody thought, there goes the neighborhood. Isn't that sad? That, that people thought, oh no, here comes the Christians. Everything's going to fall apart now. And so as a result of that, there was one couple that actually put their house up for sale because they didn't want to live near, near Christians. And then you think, oh wow, well they're going to die and go to hell. God's going to judge them and just, let's just write them off. They don't like Christians. No, that's not what Lance did. Lance and his wife and this other couple, they said, we're going to love them. So they built relationship with them, invited them into the house, became really good friends with them. And over a period of, I think, six months to a year, they became really close with the people in their neighborhood. And that one couple that put their house on the market for sale pulled it off the market, not because it wasn't getting any any, uh, play or people weren't looking at it, and it wasn't a financial decision. It was because they said, we want to stay because who? Because those evangelical Christians. We want to stay because they're not like we thought they were. They're actually pretty decent people, and they actually love people, and they actually care for people around them. And Lance began to redefine for the people in his neighborhood what it meant to be Christian. And if you hear his story, they're continuing to build relationship with them and to be present in their community. And because of that, because these people who don't know Jesus have experienced the love of Jesus, now their understanding of Christianity and their understanding of the church and their understanding of Jesus is being changed. Why? Because somebody is living out what that looks like, what it looks like to be Jesus in their neighborhood. We're about 350 people. What if 350 of us lived that way? Just think about what our city would look like. Just think about what your neighborhood would look like. If your neighbors knew that you loved them, that when you walked out, you were the one that everyone like, wow, they, they really care about. I see them walking around the neighborhood picking up trash and picking up somebody's dog droppings and really taking care of other people. I saw them up the street with an elderly lady who couldn't mow her on lawn and they were taking care of her. I see them bringing somebody's trash cans. They're always out in the neighborhood talking to people. Can you imagine if all of us lived that way? Simi Valley would be a different place. What if all the Christians in our city lived that way? Simi Valley would be a different place. There'd be a lot more people who follow Jesus in our city. Moore Park, San Fernando Valley, Fillmore, wherever you drive from, Thousand Oaks, Newberry Park. God could do that. God did do that. God is doing that. If you and I are willing to say, okay, this thing called mission, it's the church's responsibility, and I am the church. We are the church, so that's my responsibility, to live this out. That's who we are. That's who we're becoming. So when we make this transition, I'm going to pray and, and close in a moment. We're not just changing addresses. We're not just changing names. But we are actually embracing an old, new identity that God has given to us. And I cannot wait to see what God wants to accomplish and will accomplish through us in the future. My prayer is our city will never be the same. Not because, oh, we're the only show in town. No, there's a lot of wonderful, incredible churches in our city that God is working through right now for our city to be different. And then beyond that, for our world. For our world, God's called us to reach people, different ethnicity, different background, and they're in our city, and they're around the world. But if we will see that God has called us to be about his mission, and ultimately that demonstration will glorify him and people will be drawn to him, then this is what I'll close with. This is what I am looking forward in my life. The highlight of the beginning of eternity for me, I'm hoping will look like this. That as we 
are taken up into heaven when Jesus returns, and we are standing in that throne room that you hear about in Revelation, around the throne, and Jesus is on the throne, and we're worshiping him, then I'm going to peek a little bit. I'm going to open my eyes, and I'm going to look around the room. And the highlight for me will be to look across the room and see one, two, three, four, I don't know how many people that before they knew me, they didn't know Jesus. When they met me, they met Jesus through me. And because of that, they're standing in the throne of heaven. They're with Jesus for eternity. They're living out forever the fulfillment of why they existed. And I had one little piece of that. If it's just one person in heaven, then it's all worth it. Can you imagine what that would be like if your life impacted the person who lives next to you right now, who apart from you, they don't know who Jesus is, but God put you next to them so that they could know him and they could be with Jesus forever. Is that incredible? Is that incredible? That's what God's called us to. And that's where we're headed. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we conclude our final gathering here at Shasta, we thank you for your power, your ministry through this place and these people for all these years. Lord, the the thing that's always been true about this body of people, whether they've been called Sunrise, New Hope, or now Antioch, is that whether we knew it or not, you've always been the Lord of the church. And because of that, as you move us forward, this move, this name, this identity, it isn't about us. It's about you. And I pray, Lord, that as we we make this, this transition, that we would leave those things behind that belong in the past. And that as we let go of those things, our hands and our hearts are wide open to embrace the future that you have for us together. So that, Lord, we're not just going to go occupy another building or address, but we will see ourselves and we will know that we are new as followers of you, that we are new in the identity you've given us as a group of people who follow you called the church. And the result of that, Lord, there will be something new that you will do in our lives that will impact our city and our world. In Jesus' name, amen.